As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the living word. To whom else can we go, for he alone has the words of eternal life. So as we listen to his word, may Christ's spirit write its message on our hearts and feed our souls with its nourishing truth. In this time, we pray that you would speak to us of eternal things, so that hearing the promises of scripture, we may hope and be lifted above all the darkness and distress of this life in the light and peace of your presence through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the Gospel of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. And you can find this passage on page 1065 of most of the Pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. We've come to Mark chapter 2, and our reading for this morning will be chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, as we see a question about fasting uh, being raised. So Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. We've noticed as we've gone along in the gospel of Mark, uh, that this particular section of the gospel is one of increasing conflict. Conflict with what Jesus is doing, with what Jesus is preaching, with how Jesus and his disciples behave, and that of the religious establishment. Um, There's a religious establishment at work, groups, various groups at work, we see two of them here, uh, that were working towards trying to influence the common people in a certain direction. And we see increasingly that they see Jesus as a threat to their program. There's a constant conflict arising between these people and Jesus. It's becoming more intense. It's becoming more overt. At first they questioned in their hearts. Then they questioned his disciples. Now they question him. Um, And it touches on all varieties of behavior. Uh, You might remember last week it was how Jesus ate that they had a problem with. Now it's the fact that Jesus doesn't fast that they have a problem with. 
Um, there's increasing conflict, and God is using this as an opportunity to allow Jesus to teach about the true nature of who he is and of the kingdom that he's proclaiming. Uh, that what he brings. that is better. Think about that together. We want to think about that that's new, that that's better, um, that what Jesus is teaching, particularly through this question, this controversy concerning fasting. What does Jesus have to say in regard to the question that's raised during fasting, and how does his response teach us to respond to the kingdom of God? To teach us the proper response to the coming of the kingdom of God. That's really what this passage is about. What is the proper response to the coming of the kingdom of God? And Mark will show us how Jesus teaches this through first this practice that's questioned. Um, The practice of fasting that's questioned. That's the first thing we see. Then there'll be a perspective corrected. Jesus will come and teach why he does what he does. And then finally, a purpose clarified will be seen in what is the purpose that Jesus has come into the world to do. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. A practice questioned, a perspective corrected, and a purpose clarified. Now, the practice that's questioned, as we said, is the practice of fasting. Uh, Mark begins, as he does succinctly um, in most of his gospel, by saying, Now John's disciples, John the Baptist, his disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. And people notice there are all these groups fasting. And then they look at Jesus and his disciples, this teacher who'd begun to get such popular acclaim. And and they notice that their disciples don't fast. Uh, They're different from what they see going on in the people around them. And this is something that would invite questions. uh, Because fasting was a very big part of Judaism at the time. Um, It was the way you kind of showed your religious commitment was by being someone who fasted in that Old Testament sense. Uh, Sometimes when you read the Old Testament, it will use as synonymous with the word fasting that you will go afflict yourself. Uh, Fasting was seen as a kind of self-affliction that people would do. And so as we see these various groups doing it, we should want to ask the question, why do they do that? What is the purpose of this self-affliction for these various groups? Uh, Maybe we find it a little uncomfortable that John's disciples, John the Baptist, and the Pharisees' disciples would be put together kind of in the same lump. Uh, We know that John the Baptist was really from the Lord, and the Pharisees represent everything that's against the Lord. So why would these two groups be doing the same thing? Uh, Were they doing it for the same purpose? Uh, No, I think they had different ends in view as they fasted. Why would John's disciples be engaged in fasting? What would prompt the disciples of John the Baptist to engage in this? Um, Well, we know that John preached. What did he preach? The Lord is coming. That there needs to be a repentance of our sins to prepare ourselves for this coming day of the Lord. That was the message that John preached. And so John the Baptist 
his disciples, they, they were fasting as an expression of repentance, designed specifically to hasten the coming day of the Lord. Um, if John's message is, be prepared for the Lord is coming, then his disciples were interested in being prepared, in trying to show that repentance and trying to hasten then the coming day of the Lord. It was part of that ascetic lifestyle that John seemed to represent. Remember, he was a man of the wilderness, that he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, He was a very uh, ascetic man, kind of showing this preparation for the coming of God. And that's probably why his disciples then are fasting. And we also know something of why the Pharisees engaged in fasting. As I said, along with, with almsgiving and prayer, fasting was seen as one of the pillars of the Jewish religion. It was how you showed you were really committed to God. Um, And that's what the Pharisees were engaged in. They would fast twice a week. Remember that the Pharisee at prayer when Jesus uses that as a parable. That's one of the things that he touts before the Lord. I fast twice a week. Uh, The Pharisees were well known for that. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, if you needed to know which days. Um, They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. They would fast, and it was obvious they were fasting. Jesus picks that up later in in the Gospels. It was obvious they were doing that, and they would do that. And why? Um, It was, again, an example of trying to set an example of piety, trying to show how devoted to God they were. And it was their hope that the common people would pick this up and that as everybody began to show this devotion to God, that God would relent and visit His people and the promises of God that are seen in the Old Testament would come to life, that this was sort of a way of bringing revival to the people so that we would all begin to act in these ways and that that would prompt the coming of the kingdom of God. That was what was theologically behind what they were trying to do. And you see how this this fasting is going on, and these were expressions of religious commitment. And as people saw John's disciples doing this, and saw the Pharisees doing this, and then looked to Jesus who showed so much power and so much authority in all these other ways, but then they don't do this, it prompts people to ask the question, how come you don't do this? Right? This is such an expression of repentance, such an expression of piety, of, of devotion to God, to afflict yourselves in this way. Why are your disciples different, Jesus? Why don't they do that? If this is such an important part of showing fundamental religious commitment to God, why don't your disciples engage in this? And Jesus, as He so often has done in the gospel, answers their question with a question. A question that's intended to correct their perspective. So from this practice that's questioned, Jesus comes and corrects the perspective by asking a very simple question. A simple and obvious question. Are weddings times of rejoicing or times of sorrow? When you go to a wedding, what is the mood at the wedding? Is it one of sorrow Or is it one of joy? Particularly for those who are, as Mark puts it literally and sort of woodenly, sons of the bridegroom. Those who are part of the the groom's party. How do they feel about the wedding? 
Maybe some of you can think back to being a groom at the wedding or being a groomsman with a groom at the wedding. You know it's not a time of sorrow. You know it's a time of joy. You're there with your closest friends, with your closest family. They're there with you to stand beside you as you enter into this wonderful state of marriage, as you're going through this wonderful change in life. Right? And even if somebody makes a crack, you know, it's not too late to leave or, you know, let's have a moment of silence for the guy who's single, who's going out and getting married. Even if a crack is made like that, sorry, ladies, it does happen. Um, but even if a crack is made like that, it's all in the spirit of fun. It's all in the spirit of the joy of the moment. Right? If someone really seriously said, you know, let's just bow our heads and have a moment of silence for how sad we all are. Right? Someone would just say, what, what are you doing? What is going on here? That's not the time for this. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. What is a wedding a time for? Is it a time for sorrow? Or is it a time for joy? It's the joy of the moment that means my disciples can't be fasting. It's the joy of what's happening that means this is no time for that. That's what Jesus is clearly communicating. That you don't understand the time if you think this is a time of fasting. Because what was their fasting all geared towards? Whether it was from John the Baptist's perspective that was a true and biblical perspective, or the Pharisees' perspective that we know as a hypocritical perspective, perspective, what were they both trying to do? They were trying to bring the kingdom of God. They're saying we should prepare, and if we do our preparations right, then maybe it will come. Right? John the Baptist came preaching preparation for the one who was coming. But John the Baptist never wanted disciples of his own. Certainly never wanted disciples that would follow him when Jesus came. Now, John has been arrested and maybe even executed by this point. We don't know when this story takes place. So maybe he's not around to guide his disciples the way he would if he were there. But when he is there, what does he do? What do we see in John's gospel, for example, when he sees Jesus? In John 1, 35-37, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, John never said, wait, stop, I'm losing followers. This is bad for my business, for my brand. He never says that. In fact, he says the opposite two chapters later, clarifying what has always been his purpose in the world. And interestingly, he too uses a wedding metaphor. What does he say in John 3, 28 through 31? You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes is from above and is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
Right? What was John's whole point? I've just come to do a temporary preparatory work. Now that Jesus has come, I need to disappear. My work is over. I've prepared the way. I'm not the main focus. Right? If, if a groomsman at a wedding becomes the main focus, something has gone wrong. He's usually passed out. Um, sometimes you see that happen at a wedding or you've, maybe you've stood with groomsmen who look like they're about to pass out. Remember, I was a groomsman at a wedding once and I thought the best man was about to pass out and I tapped the guy on, my, on the shoulder in front of me to say, I think he's about to pass out. And he turned around and it looked like he was about to pass out. And I thought, we're all going to go over like dominoes. That's not what you want at a wedding, right? People are not there to see groomsmen fall. They're there for the wedding couple. That's what John is saying. I've never been the main act. I've always been rejoicing at the coming of the bridegroom. Now that he's here, I'm, I'm not important. You know, he says that. I, I'm from the earth. I speak in an earthly way. Here's the heavenly man. Listen to him. His work was always meant to be temporary and preparatory. He was always saying the Christ is coming. And once he comes, look to him. Right? You, don't, you don't need to prepare anymore when he's arrived. And that's what Jesus comes and does. He comes as the Lord, proclaiming what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. How foolish it is to prepare for a coming kingdom and to miss the fact that the kingdom's come. That's why Jesus says their fasting is inappropriate. They're fasting like the kingdom, like they want the kingdom to come, and they're not recognizing the kingdom has come. The same was true of the Pharisees. If we can just gin up enough religious devotion among the people, then certainly God will have to look. He'll have to deliver on the promises He made to the prophets. We can speed that day if we just all devote ourselves, really devote ourselves to law-keeping. We can bring about the kingdom of God. And let's work hard to do it. Let's fast even more than we're called to do. And maybe by our acts of devotion, we can bring the kingdom of God. But again, how foolish that is when light of the fact that Jesus has come. Jesus has come. That means the kingdom of God has come. And what a wonderfully different message he brings than the Pharisees. They're saying if we can only work ourselves up to be worthy of God, then maybe he will visit us. And what did we see last week? God has visited the unworthy. God has visited the outcasts and the sinners with the message of the gospel that they might turn to him and be qualified to share in the kingdom. He's come to qualify us to share in the kingdom. We don't have to qualify ourselves. Jesus is here. The king has come. The kingdom has come with him. That's why this is no time for fasting, Jesus says. This is time for joy. This is time for rejoicing. Because the king has come. What reason has there been for sorrow in this gospel thus far? What does the gospel begin with an announcement of? This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world preaching the gospel of God. 
the good news of repentance and faith, preaching it to everyone. And what does he bring with him as he comes? Healing. Multitudes of the sick are relieved of their suffering. Multitudes of the demon-possessed are relieved of their demons. A woman with a deadly fever is healed. A leper is made clean. A paralytic is made to walk. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed with authority. Fellowship with saved sinners is enjoyed by the king with his people. Exactly what part of that should get us down? Exactly what part of that should we mourn over? This is what Jesus is saying. It's an entirely inappropriate time for that. This is the perspective that that we should have. This is the perspective he was teaching to his disciples. And this is the perspective that others were missing. The kingdom is here now. Because the king is here now. And because the king has come is why we've seen the lightning flashes, the glimpses of the glories of the kingdom to come breaking in on this present evil age. Why is it that the sick are healed and the demons are driven out? Why is it that repentance of uh, forgiveness of sins is preached with authority? That fellowship with forgiven sinners is enjoyed? What are those all pictures of? They're, they're glimpses, like a flashbulb going off um, or a lightning flash that reveals something just for a moment. We're seeing what that kingdom that's coming is going to be like. Where there is no sickness and there is no affliction. Where there is no sin. Where people are reconciled to their God and enjoy fellowship with Him forever. They're seeing these glimpses break in because the King is here. This is the kind of kingdom He's come to bring. So what is there to mourn over about that kingdom? As long as the king is with them, that is a time for joy. And this again is something that they should have been expecting, especially those who were experts in the Bible. What was one of the great promises of the Old Testament? That God was going to come and turn all of their mourning into joy. All of their fasting into feasting. Right? That was one of the great promises of the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament only actually required one day of fasting. There was only one fast appointed by the law. And that was the fast connected with the Day of Atonement. That was the only day the Lord required all of Israel to engage in a fast. As one commentator put it, it was designated as a day of cleansing from sin and affliction of the soul as an act of repentance in preparation for expiation. An act of repentance in preparation for sin being taken away and atoned for. That was the only fast appointed by the law. Other fasts developed over time. As God's people began to fast in recognition of days of great national tragedy. They had a fast that remembered when Moses broke the tablets of the law. They had a fast where they remembered the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. 
They had a fast when they remembered the murder of Gedaliah, the governor that had been appointed in Babylon, and the exile of all the Jews that followed that foolish act of rebellion. Um, they remembered when the Jerusalem fell. They remember when Haman plotted to kill all the Jews. Time of fasting was a reminder of national tragedy. And other personal fasts were appointed. And what had God's word promised? In the light of all of those fasts, there was a day that was coming that would be so glorious they would forget all of their former trouble. Right? What, what did those fasts always do? They were always reminding them of their failures of their covenant breaking. Why did Moses break the tablets? Because he was so angry with what they were doing in violating God's law. Why did, the, did Nebuchadnezzar destroy Jerusalem? It was because they were covenant breakers. It was an, a, a judgment of God that had come upon them. Um, all of these kinds of things were remembering, remembrances of their failures. And God had promised a time that was coming when the failures would be forgotten, when the glory and the grace of God showered on His people would be so great that they would forget those former fasts and turn them into feasts. That was a promise made in Zechariah's day. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerfulness of heart. The day was coming when the Lord would bring such glory that, as one person put it, Israel would forget to commemorate the former mournful events and would only have occasion to rejoice in the blessings of grace bestowed upon it by God. That's what's happened in the coming of Jesus. Whatever else has transpired, whatever else has happened, Whatever else has gone before, Jesus is here now. And that makes everything different. That makes all things new. That's what these healings, and that's what this word has shown. That's what this teaching with authority has shown. He's here, and that means everything is different. That means everything has changed with the coming of the kingdom of glory. It's being inaugurated in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's breaking in to this present evil age. That's no time for fasting. There's no need to prepare for the Lord's coming. He's here. There's no need to bring the promises of God or try to do it by our own piety and righteousness. Jesus has come to provide the promise of God, to provide the righteousness that's necessary. This is no time for fasting. Jesus doesn't condemn fasting, but he says this kind of self-affliction is, is incompatible with the coming of the kingdom of God and the presence of the king among us. It's no time for that. He doesn't say there will never be a time for that. Um, he says as long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. But what does he also say in verse 20? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. 
Um, There is a day coming, just as Christ's presence is the source of joy, there is a day coming when he will be taken away and his absence will be cause for sorrow and mourning. Um, I think Mark very intentionally uses the phrase, taken away. The words taken away because they resonate with the Greek translation of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 53.8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It becomes clear that this is a reference to the suffering and death that the Lord Jesus Christ will endure at the hands of wicked men. There is a day coming when he will be taken away, where he will go to his cross and walk that dark road by which he will bring the light of the gospel to light on his people. There is a day coming, and then it would be appropriate to mourn. But that day will not last long. That's also the promise. They will fast in that day. You might say, Pastor, that's a little flimsy to build a whole theory on, right? Of a little while just because it says that day. Um, But that's also the message that Jesus gives his disciples in John 16, verse 16. In a little while you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. And as usual, the disciples say, do you know what he's talking about? Because I have no idea but I'm kind of afraid to ask. And Jesus in his mercy says, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. There is a time when God's disciples will mourn, when Christ's disciples will mourn, and fast while the world is rejoicing and feasting. But it won't last long. And that sorrow will be turned into joy. Because the Lord who goes to the cross and to the grave will come up out of the grave alive. And the Lord who is with them for those 40 days and ascending into heaven will come again soon in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's why this passage has a host of wonderful things to reflect on for Christians. Because Jesus promised us that he he is with us always to the very end of the age. And if the point of of this, this passage is that when Jesus is with you, that's no time for mourning, that's no time for sorrow, it's a time for joy, it's a reminder to us that we have a joy, a source of joy that is unbreakable in this world. Because the Lord is always with us, then God's people always have reason to rejoice in the Lord. It's a time of unbroken joy that comes to the people of God. Peter put it this way, Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's an inexpressible joy to be with Jesus. And any sorrow we experience because he's not bodily present with us in this present evil age will last for only a little while. Now the little while of this present evil age can seem at times interminable. 
can seem really, really long. But what does the Bible teach us always to think about life in this world? We're to think of the time being short. We're to think of the night being far gone and the day being at hand. We're to think of this as the last hour. And what that is meant to do is help us to say, whatever we're suffering here below, we can hang on for another hour in light of the glory that's coming. Because there's a glory that's coming that's not worth being compared with what's come before. And that's really what Jesus is doing when he ends with these kind of strange parables about the cloth and the wineskin that would be kind of incomprehensible to us if he didn't explain them to us. But what is he clarifying that his purpose is to do? Is coming in the world and make things new. That's what he's coming to do. He's coming to make things new. And I know, I know we've been at this for a while and you can feel like we just started the third point. It's not going to be that long. It's a very simple point that these two pictures illustrate. Um, what are they illustrating? Jesus is coming to bring something entirely new. Um, and the problem that the Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples had is they couldn't really conceive of the new outside of the lens of the old. They were trying to fit Jesus into an older mold. And what Jesus is saying is trying to do that is like trying to patch an old garment with a new piece of cloth. When the new piece of cloth shrinks, it'll just tear the whole thing apart. The patch won't hold. Or if you try to put new wine in old wineskins, that old brittle leather will not be able to expand with the wine as it expands and the whole thing will just tear apart. What is Jesus teaching them? He's not teaching them the old is bad and the new is good. Uh, The law came through Moses. That that wasn't bad. It was just a different kind of good. And the kind of good that Jesus is bringing is something entirely new. Something that can't be compared with the old. It's incompatible. You can't think of them together because they will not measure against one another. This good is so much greater, it's in terms of, that are really inconceivable for us. It's something new that we've never seen before. That's the purpose Jesus means to clarify for them in this. I've come to do something entirely new that can't be compared with the things that have come before. It's like when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What is he saying? It would be no good to sit down and try to compare the experience of this life to the experience that awaits God's people in glory. Chrysostom said that you can't compare the things present with the things to come. The momentary with the eternal. The things that are lightweight and the things that are weighty. The affliction with the glory. They won't compare. They don't compute. It's not just a little bit better. It's something that's a new kind of good. And again, if we want to try to wrap our minds around what the new kind of good will be, it almost is only, we're only, only, almost only able to do that by talking in terms of what it won't be. You notice that? The, the Bible says, what is the new that Jesus is making? 
Well, it's a place where there will be no hunger or thirst. Where there will be no scorching heat. Where there will be no demons or fevers or leprosy or paralysis. Where death will be no more. And neither will be there pain or crying or mourning anymore. For the former things will have passed away. Do you understand what life will be like in that world? Can you fully comprehend what it's like to be you without sin? To be you yet spiritual, incorruptible, indestructible? Jesus is saying, if you think I've just come to rehabilitate the old, you have no idea what I've come to do. I've come to make things new. I've come to reconcile sinners to God. I've come to drive the curse out of the world. I've come to make a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I've come to make you the kinds of new people that can live in that world. And if you think that time is the time for mourning, you have no idea what I'm doing. And everything that he's done to this point should be a cause for rejoicing. Because it's shown us a kingdom where God comes and fellowships with his people. Where God comes and forgives his people. Where God comes and drives out sickness and demons and separation in the world. That's not a time for mourning. That's a time for joy. Because Jesus has come to make all things new. Praise the Lord that he's come. Praise the Lord that that kingdom has been inaugurated. And if the flashes of glory that we've seen in the gospel are that great, how much greater will be the fullness of glory when he returns? Such as no eye has seen or ear has heard or the thoughts of man can even imagine what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. What a day that will be when it comes. May we all be prepared to meet it through faith and repentance in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we long for that world that Jesus will make new and how thankful we are to know that he is with us and that as long as he is with, with us, that he is the source and the center of our joy. And so, Father, we pray that we would be mindful of the fact that Jesus is with us always to the very end of the age, that we have with us always our Lord and he will always be the source of our joy. Help us to remember that the joy of the Lord is our strength in this world. And the goodness that we experience in fellowship with him now will only increase when he comes again in glory to make all things new. We thank you that he came once into the world to save us from our sins. We thank you that he will come again soon to deliver us from this present evil age. May he come quickly and may all here be prepared to meet him when he comes by faith. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name.